Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but really I'm aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If this is you, get a few friends to join you on a weekly journey through the Word Diet. If this isn't you, I'll bet you have a few friends in that boat, so grab them and start a little group. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the book of Numbers, an important historical book in the Old Testament that has great relevance to the Christian life. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Right now we're in Numbers 18 and 19. A couple of things to say about the context here. First of all, it follows chapters 16 and 17, which were reiterating the honor and the position of the priest. Chapter 16 was about God quelling Korah's rebellion. Chapter 17 was the miracle of Aaron's budding rod. And when the scriptures talk about our position, it then often moves to our responsibilities. Think about the two halves of the book of Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3 on our identity in Christ, chapters 4 through 6 on our responsibilities and opportunities in Christ. The second thing to say is that chapters 18 and 19 is about appropriate ways to approach God. And these are themes that we've developed elsewhere and have been revisited often from the scriptures. But why here? Well, if we look at the end of chapter 17, we see why the need would arise. Verses 12 and 13, the Israelites said to Moses, We will die. We are lost. We are all lost. Anyone who even comes near the tabernacle of the Lord will die. Are we all going to die? And the people are freaking out after the budding rod incident. And so this is a good time to revisit how do you approach God? Ian Richards says the tabernacle is not to be feared, but as holy to the Lord, it is to be treated with respect. And so we've got to balance that. And they've got the fear covered, but how to approach is important to God as well. So chapter 18 will reiterate how Aaron and the Levites can work with the tabernacle. And then chapter 19 will be about the people who are called to be holy. The focus there will be the topic of being ceremonially clean, especially with respect to the greatest defilement available, and that was death. And that's the topic of the water of purification. We covered that in the book of Leviticus in episode 99. And so we will not be covering that here. So chapter 18 divides into two parts. The first is the duties in verses 1 through 7. Verse 1 talks about the responsibility for offenses against the sanctuary and the priesthood. So this is indicative of the need to both respect God and the leaders and the importance of the priesthood and the Levites for defending the holy tabernacle from impurity. Again, this is especially important in light of Korah's rebellion at the end of chapter 16. Verses 2 through 4 say that the Levites are responsible to Aaron and for the tent maintenance, but there are also boundaries for the Levites and the lay people. My favorite part of the passage is in verses 6 and 7, which talks about two gifts to the Aaron, the Levites in verse 6 and the service of the priesthood itself in verse 7. As gifts, neither are merited. They're both given by grace, and thus they are to be treated especially well. There are also opportunities for service, and it's the idea that God's presence and working for God are both gifts. 
Now, the rest of the passage is going to be about the material provision for the Levites and the priest, but for, the, for now, Aaron is to receive the gift of the Levites and the service itself as a gift as well. So, verses 8 through 20, then, is the provision from the offerings for Aaron. Verses 21 through 32 is for the Levites. First of all, all of this looks forward to Canaan when agriculture and paying this tithe and these offerings would be possible. The only thing I want to read out of this passage is verses 19 and 20. Whatever is set aside from the holy offerings the Israelites present to the Lord, I give to you and your sons and daughters as your perpetual share. It is an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord for both you and your offspring. The Lord said to Aaron, you will have no inheritance in their land, nor will you have any share among them. I am your share and your inheritance among the Israelites. Verse 19, the phrase, an everlasting covenant of salt is interesting. Salt is a sign of durability, and so it's a nice uh, picture, nice phrase here. Verse 20, though, the key is that they would have no inheritance among the Israelites, in other words, no land in Canaan, but for Aaron and his sons, God was his share and inheritance. For the Levites, they would receive tithes at their inheritance, but for Aaron, he would receive both a material provision and, again, the ministry itself, a close relationship with God, which was to sustain them. So what do we do with this idea? First of all, it promoted dependence on God. For us as well, God should be enough. Matthew Henry says God's work is its own wages. Verse 22, the people can't go near, but the priests and the Levites then are special. Part of their value, part of their identity is that relationship, is that work that they have with God. And so if we have special work in the kingdom, that should sustain us as it would Aaron and the Levites and the other priests. Second, this arrangement would leave them less bothered by earthly worries, and so they would be able to model a holy indifference to temporal things. Rather than coveting them, they would be able to treat them uh, with the weight, uh, the limited weight that they should be given. Third, uh, with a bit of a wink, it would encourage them to preach on money. If all of your resources are coming from uh, the people, then it would encourage you to remind them of the need to look at the things of God in this way so that you can receive your sustenance. Finally, it's interesting that the Levites were the smallest tribe, but they would receive a disproportionate share of the nation's agricultural earnings. There are some other conditions in the passage that are sort of interesting. Verses 15 and 16, animals that were to be redeemed by Aaron. Verses 25 through 32, the Levites themselves were to tithe to Aaron. So you've got a tithe of a tithe. Even the priests and the Levites were supposed to give something back to God. And for New Testament believers, this is not the most interesting passage, but the principle still holds here that it is really important that we should take care of our ministers, but also the work should be its own reward to some extent. 1 Corinthians 9 and other passages talk about the need to treat ministers well in a material sense, but the ministers themselves should be seeing the work and should experience the work as a tremendous blessing as well. We take care of our ministers in a material sense, but the spiritual blessings of leading the people of God, discipling them, and so on, should be extremely valuable as well. Okay, it's time to take a break. Please check out Proclaim from Pure Radio, Kentuckiana's Christian Community Bulletin, available online at pureradio.org, and with free paper editions in store at 200 locations. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to the Word Diet. Right now we're in Numbers 20. In the previous segment, we did Numbers 18 
Numbers 19 was covered in episode 99. We'll start here with verse 1, chapter 20. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There Miriam died and was buried. From other passages, we know that the first month here refers to the 40th year in the wilderness. The history of the last year in the wilderness is almost as long as the first one and a half years, with little on the middle 37 and a half years. They're returning to Kadesh, which is the site of Numbers 13 and 14, the tremendous rebellion that kept them in the wilderness for so long. This is a new generation on the verge of entering the promised land. And the last thing is the most obvious, that Miriam dies and is buried at this point. Gordon Winham makes an interesting point about the structure. This is the third and last travel narrative in Exodus and Numbers. Here they'll be going from Kadesh to the Transjordan. It's interesting that the third journey proceeds quite differently. It begins in gloom and ends on a note of subdued but real jubilation. We have the deaths of Miriam and Aaron and Moses' unbelief in this chapter. But it concludes with three victories and some songs. This inverts what we had seen earlier with things seem to get off to a good start and then go downhill. I like the principle here. Is it better to get off to a good start and fade or get off to a rough start and get better? The scripture here indicates the latter is better. Let's start off rough if it need be, but let's finish strong. Okay, verses 2 through 5. Now there was no water for the community and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. So twice in the passage, we're told there's no water. Of course, the uh, reader will remember Exodus 17, where water comes out of the rock, very similar to this story. And it's an inclusio, a bookend. It was toward the beginning of the account of the time in the wilderness, and this comes toward the end of that. Now, water was typically abundant at the spring at Kadesh, but it's not available here. And this is a really big deal. Unfortunately, it's not handled very well. In particular, the people have a selective memory and are distracted by the supposed luxuries of verse 5. And so in verse 2, the people gather in opposition to Moses and Aaron. Verse 3, they quarrel with Moses. And then verses 3 through 5 lay out a range of complaints, blindness, and the like. Now, this is standard stuff. It is flavored by some interesting wording. Verse 4, they refer to themselves as the Lord's community. That's hilarious. We and our livestock, which indicates their wealth and provision, and they complain there are no figs, grapes, and pomegranates. Of course, ironically, all of those things would be available in Canaan. Think about the context of Flavored as well. This is especially galling in light of Miriam's recent death. Give Moses and Aaron a break, would you? Or think about the end of 17 that I already read in the last segment. They didn't want to die, and now they keep talking about dying. And so this isn't about coherent arguments. It's about convenient arguments. And when we lash out at people, that's often the way we sound. We sound silly. Uh, The things we say often don't make any sense. They also have no hope here. They're not looking forward at all. The things they want are right around the corner. They're going to get them soon. And it's important for us to be future-oriented, have hope in God and what he's going to provide for us. Now, they are one generation removed from the miracles of Egypt, 
Now only the oldest would remember them directly, but despising and quarreling with God's provision, especially when he's taking care of them so well, instead they should be thanking God for what he's done for them. Matthew Henry says they prefer slavery before liberty, the house of bondage before the land of promise. And Matthew Henry indicates in this case, the divine patience shines as brightly as the divine power. It's amazing that God puts up with this complaining. It's interesting as well that they blame Moses rather than their parents. That's why they've been in the wilderness all this time. And I think for us, the lesson is that if we can't allocate responsibility well, especially to ourselves, we cannot have peace. We cannot have growth. Here they're taking after their parents, as Matthew Henry puts it, murmuring ran in the blood. And if we've got a characteristic of our parents that's good, we'll keep it going. But if we find ourselves following in our parents' footsteps in a way that's harmful, we need to cut it out. Verses 6 through 8, Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community, so they and their livestock can drink. So these are the instructions from the Lord, verse 6, to fall face down. They had done that three times in chapter 16, so this is a recurring theme. And then the instructions are in verse 8, take the staff and speak to that rock and it will pour out its water. It's interesting for the careful reader that the staff is picked up but not used as it was in Exodus 17. The staff is apparently meant to be a reminder and an encouragement. Oddly, it would end up as a temptation. Don't want to give you too much of a spoiler alert, but picking up the staff is going to get Moses ultimately in trouble. As for speaking to the rock, Matthew Henry makes an interesting observation that Moses is not speaking to the people. Henry says, God bids him to speak to the rock, which would do as it was bidden to shame the people who had been so often spoken to and would not hear nor obey. Their hearts were harder than this rock. And there are many analogies to rock and water in scripture. And it's interesting that these rocks would cry out with water of provision and grace. Okay, verses 9 through 11. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he had commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. So the passage starts off fine. Verse 9 and the first half of verse 10 is obedience. And we've seen this over and over again in the scripture where there's this disobedience that's remarkable, but there's also a number of instances where we have precise obedience. And that's what we get early in this passage. But then things start to get weird with the speech from Moses late in verse 10. Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Now, first of all, we bring is an unfortunate choice of words. In a sense, it's correct. It actually echoes what God had said to them to some extent, but it also puts a lot more on Moses than it does on God. God's going to bring the miracle. Moses is just around for the ride. And then the phrase, you rebels. So first of all, this signals Moses' anger and frustration with the people. Psalm 106.33, revisiting this history, says that rash words came from Moses' lips. If we look at the context, maybe the death of his sister and grief 
is part of his aggravation here. I think we have application there. Sometimes we kick the dog or we get more uh, bothered because of other events in our life that are difficult. Or maybe he's upset that they're bothering him just after the death of Miriam, right? Why not give him a break? So his frustration and anger are probably multiplied because of what, uh, the death of his sister. It also smacks of self-righteousness, you rebels. You know, for the New Testament believer, we know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that includes us. So to refer to anyone as you rebels is just not accurate. Or we think back to Numbers 12, 3, where Moses is the most humble man in the world. He doesn't appear to be that in this case. Again, there's application here. When we find ourselves thinking of people as you rebels or you morons or you X, Y, or Z, it doesn't really matter. Uh, we're not in a good place there. We have forgotten that there but for the grace of God go I. And so in our hearts and especially in our mouths and our, in our minds, when we think of other people this way and when we enunciate that, we're in a very bad position. And that's where Moses is at here. Verse 11, we get the disobedience. He strikes the rock twice. What was he supposed to do? He was instructed to speak to it. Here he strikes it. Well, he struck it in Exodus 17. So we have a picture here both of acting independently and acting out of the flesh. He's doing what he's used to doing. In Exodus 17, he had struck it. He doesn't seem to even hear the instructions from the Lord to speak to it. He just does what worked before. And that's a picture of acting out of the flesh. I think when we look at our own ministry efforts, our uh, life efforts, when we find ourselves just doing what we've always done, uh, it may not be spirit-led that that's the case. Maybe it's a force of habit more than under the impression of the Holy Spirit. Romans 14, 23 says that everything should be done by faith. And so when we find ourselves doing it the same way every time, uh, it's an indication that it's out of the flesh rather than the spirit. Now he strikes it twice. Now what's interesting to me about this is we don't know how much time passes between the two strikes. Imagine, first of all, that he hits it twice very quickly consecutively. That would imply anger and a lack of control. You can w imagine him wishing that he were smashing some skulls instead of this rock. Or maybe quite a bit of time passed. Maybe he struck it, nothing happened, he paused, and then he struck it again. That would be interesting because then striking it the first time didn't work. That should have gotten his attention, should have signaled to him that it was the wrong method. Or maybe even allowed Moses an opportunity to repent, to get his head on straight, but it doesn't work. For Moses' sake, I don't know whether to wish he was just banging on the rock or whether he banged on it and then waited and was still so blind that he didn't catch the, what he was supposed to do. Either way, not good. Verse 11, there is still success here. God allows the water to gush out. It's interesting why punish them for Moses' mistake. Of course, God often works beyond our mistakes, and that's what he does here. Moses' failure here is reminiscent of Exodus 2 when he strikes a man, another form of inclusio, as we wrap up Moses' story here in the near future. Why does Moses lose it? Well, again, I think after his sister's death is a likely outcome, or maybe it's just 40 years of wearing on his patience. Maybe he's reliving the nightmare from 40 years ago and imagining that all of this was for naught. And it is more or less understandable, but in any case, it's still quite sinful, as we'll see in the wrap-up here. Verses 12 through 13, But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. These are the waters of Meribah, 
where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord and where he was proved holy among them. So the crime is in verses 9 through 11. The punishment is in verses 12 and 13. The place is named Meribah after the quarreling of the people. So that's interesting. It's not named after Moses' sin, but it is named after the people and their persistent quarreling. What are the different problems here that God underlines? Verse 12, the failure to trust in God enough. They distrusted the power of God's word, and that's always at the heart of unbelief and rebellion. As bad as the people are, Moses is, is traveling the same path. Verse 12 also mentions their failure to honor God as holy in the sight of the people. It assumed too much glory for themselves. It's a public sin by a leader. Even though the people probably didn't know the instructions he had received, uh, they still have not been treated properly by Moses in this episode. As a result, later in verse 12, Moses and Aaron would not bring them into Canaan. Wow, the first thing to talk about here is why is Aaron included? It looks like Moses is the, is the one who has sinned here. So he is included. He's in partnership. Did he agree? At the least, there's some passivity here, and apparently he is held accountable as well. Numbers 27, 14 says, both of you disobeyed. So there, Moses and Aaron are both fingered. Deuteronomy 32, 51, both of you broke faith with me in the presence of the Israelites. And so, although Moses is the main actor, Aaron is also held accountable as his partner. It's also interesting in that other accounts of this, Moses blames the people three times, in fact. Deuteronomy 1.37, 3.26, and 4.21, Moses blames the people three times in a row in those opening chapters of Deuteronomy. Psalm 106.32 agrees that it was because of the people. And were the people responsible? Well, yes and no, they're the catalyst. But Moses is still responsible for his reaction. It reminds me of the unfortunate phrase, you made me mad. No, I didn't make you mad, right? I have tempted you to anger, but you always are responsible for your own choices. So Aaron is included, but Moses doesn't get to go into Canaan because of this. It's a remarkably severe punishment. And so that begs some questions. What on earth is going on here? Now, one answer is just to wave our hands and say, well, God does what he wants to do. Matthew Henry says that God judges not as man judges concerning sins. That should not be a surprise to us. And of course, the believer is in this position. If we just do one thing wrong, we fall short of justification under the law. And there is no special treatment for the so-called righteous. Romans 3.23 and 6.23 underline that. So one sin means that we're distant from God, and Moses certainly has committed a sin here. But this is a special sin. It's a public sin. Verse 8 says it's before their eyes. It's a terrible example, and we know that leaders are always held to a higher standard in the scriptures. James 3.1 promises a stricter judgment for teachers. Moses had implicitly tried to take credit and glory from God. You could say these are both repeat offenses. We have the golden calf incident for Aaron in Exodus 32. We have Moses striking a man in Exodus 2. So maybe it's that it's occurred repeatedly. It's an indication of pride, unbelief, and rebellion. And that's been the people sent over and over again. So you can't let the leaders commit that. But my favorite answer to this question is that it mars a wonderful example or figure. The speak-struck distinction is a big deal. Ian Thomas talks about this in his great book, The Saving Life of Christ, that this is a picture of re-crucifying Christ again instead of relying on the Spirit. Striking Christ, as in Exodus 17, is a picture of crucifixion. Speaking to the rock 
is a picture of what happens through the Spirit. John 4 and John 7 talk about the springs of living water as the Holy Spirit. And 1 Corinthians 10, 4, they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. The struck rock of Exodus 17 is the crucifixion of Christ. The spoken-to rock of Numbers 20 was meant to be the Spirit, and Moses has jacked that up. The last thing to note here is that Moses does finally get into Canaan, and it's at the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. But for here, we've reached the limits of God's mercy, and God's judgment is that Moses would not get to lead them into the Promised Land. That task would fall to Joshua. Time to take a break. We'll be back in a minute. In the previous segment, we covered the first half of Numbers 20, which is the pivotal passage where Moses strikes the rock twice instead of speaking to it, resulting in him and Aaron not getting to go into the Promised Land. In the next two segments, we're going to wrap up the details of chapters 20 and 21 as God's plan to bring Israel into the Promised Land is fully realized. This is the end of the wilderness travels before they get to go into Canaan. In one of the parallel accounts in Deuteronomy 2, it specifies that all of the old generation died before the following events when warfare for the Promised Land would begin in earnest. We will skim a lot of this section, starting with chapter 20, verses 14 through 21. This is Edom going up against Israel. Chapter 20, verse 14, Moses sends a message from Kadesh to the king of Edom and appeals to familial ties, your brother Israel. Remember that Edom comes from the word Esau. We see this in Genesis 36, 1. And so Jacob and Esau are brothers, and the Edomites are brothers to the Israelites. Verse 15, there's an appeal to pity. Verse 16, Moses mentions God's deliverance, and perhaps this is an implied threat. If God has the power to deliver Israel, he has the implied power to mess with them. And it wraps up with verse 17, the request to pass straight through without taking food or drink. And I think there's an application here that our religion should not impose costs on others. Moses is conscious of that and assumes that away. Unfortunately, the response in verse 18 is very unpleasant and emphatic, no, and if you try it, we're going to whip up on you. So Moses tries again, verse 19, he's persistent, that's impressive. He chooses to reiterate the no cost to the Edomites, that's the practical matter that should be an issue. But again, an emphatic no in verse 20, on top of that, a large and powerful army is mustered to back up the threat. Verse 21, the Israelites retreat. Now, what is this? Is it jealousy? Is it an old enmity? Remember that Esau and Jacob were brothers, but they didn't always get along. Or is it just simply might makes right? You can push people around, so just do it. That's the world's way in many cases. In any case, Matthew Henry says, we must not think it strange if the most reasonable request be denied by unreasonable men. So Israel's not supposed to attack the Edomites because of the familial tie, and later revenge was forbidden by God. And so we see applications here to our call to love our neighbors despite the evil they do to us. Uh, Moses has made a very reasonable request. They've come back with an unreasonable reply, but Moses just decides to let things go, and they're going to go around. As a result, they go south and then around on Edom's east, where the people had just been. We see that in chapter 33, verse 35. They have to go about 180 miles out of their way because of what Edom says here. The next section is chapter 20, verses 22 through 29. This is the death of Aaron. The, the people travel in verse 22 from Kadesh to Mount Hor. 
verses 23 and 24, reiterates the Meribah punishment for Aaron, which was in the first half of chapter 20. The phrase gathered to his people is encouraging. That's used in the scriptures for the death of a righteous man at a ripe old age. We see this of Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. Verses 25 and 26 is a command to transfer the high priest's garments and position to his son Eleazar before Aaron died. Matthew Henry says, in reverence to the priesthood, it was not fit that he should die in the clothes. Beyond that, it would have resulted in ceremonial uncleanness, and that's unacceptable. Also would have prevented potential rebellion of competitor priests, and we've certainly seen that throughout Numbers as well. You endorse someone before the competition seems to become open. And I think for Eleazar, this would be a very humbling and sobering moment, which of course has its purposes going forward. Verses 27 and 28, we have obedience. And then verse 29, you have the 30 days of mourning, as we'll see with Moses in Deuteronomy 34. A few things to say about Aaron's death. Remember that the chapter began with Miriam's death and it ends with Aaron's. Note also that Aaron died in the presence of both his brother and his son. And of course, because he's the high priest, we should go read something out of the book of Hebrews. Chapter 7, verse 23 through 25. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Okay, that takes us to chapter 21, verses 1 through 3. I'm going to read this passage. When the Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming along the road to Atharim, he attacked the Israelites and captured some of them. Then Israel made this vow to the Lord, If you will deliver these people into our hands, we will totally destroy their cities. The Lord listened to Israel's plea and gave the Canaanites over to them. They completely destroyed them and their towns, so the place was named Hormah. So verse 1, Israel is attacked and people are captured. This is in contrast to the dialogue with Edom in chapter 20, and of course, far worse. You can imagine the music getting a bit ominous here if this were a movie, because this parallels the bondage to and soon the deliverance from Egypt. Uh, One gets the sense that God's not going to take kindly to his people being taken captive. Verse 2, the people vow to God that if they get victory, then they would totally destroy and devote these people and their resources back to God. First of all, for the people, this indicates an impressive humility and a dependence on God. It also prefigures and initiates what would later be God's call to holy war in Canaan. Now, this is part of a larger story, but God's justice throughout is indicated as the Canaanites continue to attack the people of Israel, engage in remarkable evil. They refuse to leave the promised land or to join with the Israelites. And so the justice of God in attacking uh, is throughout the book of Joshua in particular, but it's here as well. This is unprovoked. Arad has attacked them. And so defense and destruction are completely legitimate within God's justice. So it's interesting that the people and their plans line up with God's standard plan in Canaan. And so this is a sense of an amazing early spiritual enlightenment, where it simply signals their motivations. With a God-given victory, God should get all the glory. There should be no spoils for them. I think we also look at the people and we think, you know, how often they've murmured and complained, and there certainly would be a temptation to do that here. 
but they don't. They go to God. So this is impressive, credit where credit's due. And I think for us, there's an application that many times the small things in life cause us to complain, but the big things in life cause us to go to God. How interesting it is that the bigger trials sometimes are easier to handle than the smaller trials. Verse 3, there's an answer to prayer, God's gracious answer, and then victory. Now, this is in contrast to the post-rebellion defeat at Hormah, which meant destruction that we read about in chapter 14, verses 41 through 45 at the end of the rebellion story. Here they have success. As Wenham puts it, this brief notice records Israel's first victory over the Canaanites and heralds the dawn of a new era. It's also ironic that given Arad's geography, they probably would have been among the last destroyed by the Israelites and said because they provoke Israel, they become the first to be defeated. We'll do chapter 21, 4 through 9 in the next segment, but skip it for now. That takes us to chapter 21, verses 10 through 20, the journey to Moab. I'm going to skip this passage, but say a few things here. The pace of this passage implies movement and success, which is indicative of them nearing their goal. The wilderness travels are almost over. Verses 16 and 17, we have God given unsolicited water, and it's received with joy and thankfulness. It's also written down by Moses. I think for us, it's important for us to remember the details of series of events where God has blessed us as the people of Israel have been blessed here. Deuteronomy 2, 9 in the parallel passage says that they were to avoid Moab as well. This is another one of Lot's sons. This is also where Ruth comes from, the tribe of Moab. And so again, they avoid Moab. They go further east and then north until the land of the Amorites. Then in verses 21 through 26, Israel goes up against the Amorites. Verses 21 and 22, messengers are sent from Israel to the Amorites with request to pass through their territory. This is another peaceful offer, and it's met with an even more barbarous answer. Verse 23, the refusal, they muster, march, and fight against Israel. Verses 24 through 26 lay out the Israelite victory. Deuteronomy 2.33 says the Lord delivered him over to us. Small detail, at the end of verse 24, they're told to avoid the Ammonites. Again, that's another relative that they are to avoid, just as they had with Moab. Then in verses 27 through 30, we have a poem. Moses uses an old Amorite victory song from their previous defeat of Moab, and it includes a reference in verse 29 to Chemosh, who is a god of war. In Jeremiah 48, verses 45 and 46, we see another reference to Chemosh there. So part of this can be biblical polemic or smack talk, akin to what happens a lot in Genesis 1 through 11 or 1 Samuel 5, or the famous passage with Elijah versus the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. The use of the poem also illustrates that evil victories are short-lived. But I like what Patrick Henry Reardon says about this. He says it's remarkable that we have a poem about a war that has nothing directly to do with Israel. And he asks why, and he says, I can think of only one reason. It was a good poem about a real war. These pagan verses, much like the secular aphorisms inserted into the book of Proverbs, thus serve to broaden the Bible's own vista. Israel took care to preserve this Amorite poem for the same reason that Irish monks, as they copied the sagas of Greece and Rome, perceived that the epic quality of that literature raised it to a level of universal interest and sympathy. That is to say, the impulse prompting the assumption of this little poem into Holy Scripture was what we may call classical and it reveals a bit of God's own take on the matter. 
We see a version of this in the New Testament as well, where Paul makes three references to pagan poets that are preserved in the New Testament. And so it's a much longer discussion, but the intersection of Christianity and culture is fascinating and important to consider. Let's read verses 31 to 35 to wrap this up. So Israel settled in the land of the Amorites. After Moses had sent spies to Jazer, the Israelites captured its surrounding settlements and drove out the Amorites who were there. Then they turned and went up along the road towards Bashan, and Og, king of Bashan, and his whole army marched out to meet them in the battle at Edrai. The Lord said to Moses, Do not be afraid of him, for I have delivered him into your hands, along with his whole army and his land. Do to him what you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon. So they struck him down, together with his sons and his whole army, leaving them no survivors, and they took possession of his land. So verse 31, they settle in newly won territory. Verse 32, they send out spies and capture more Amorite land. Verse 33, they turn toward Bashan. Og and company can march out to meet them. Verse 34, God encourages them not to fear, promises a sequel to what God did through Israel to Sion and the Amorites. Now this is despite Og's 13-foot bed and coffin that is referred to in Deuteronomy 3.11. So the king is an impressive man physically. Verse 35, we have complete victory and possession. There's a lot of purposes to this battle. First, it's a direct fulfillment of Genesis 15.16. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Later, it's used as a memorial. We see it mentioned in both Psalm 135 and 136. It gives control of the Transjordan, the land to the east of the Jordan River, and this would eventually become the land where two and a half of the tribes will settle. And it also lays out an initial impression for the Canaanites. Deuteronomy 2.25 in one of the parallel passages, Moses writes, This very day I will begin to put the terror and fear of you on all the nations under heaven. They will hear reports of you and will tremble and be in anguish because of you. And that's part of what happens in these battles over Sion and Og. The other thing to say about the timing is that this is just before Moses' death. And all of this would be encouragement for Joshua, the people, and for Moses. Matthew Henry says, God gave Israel these successes while Moses was yet with them, both for his comfort, that he might see the beginning of that glorious work, which he must not live to see the finishing of, and for the encouragement of the people in the war of Canaan under Joshua. Though this was to them in comparison but as the day of small things, yet it was an earnest of great things. Okay, it's time to take a break. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Questions and comments are welcome on my Facebook. Previous episodes are available through podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and so on. We'll be back in a minute. Two segments ago, we did the first half of chapter 20 in the book of Numbers, and this explains why Moses does not get into the promised land. He strikes the rock twice instead of speaking to it. In the previous segment, we did the rest of chapter 20 and chapter 21, which covers some of the journeys and battles for Israel before they get into the promised land. But we skipped chapter 21, verses 4 through 9, And we want to go back and pick up this amazing nugget. It's one of those things that you ought to know about in the book of Numbers for its own sake, but also because it is so important to a crucial New Testament passage that's very popular. So we go back and read chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. 
The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. So verse 4 begins with the route around Edom. We had read this story back in chapter 20, verses 14 through 21. And the people grow impatient later in verse 4, apparently with the direction they were being led. Remember, they had to go around Edom, given the events of that section. Verse 5, they speak against God and Moses with the usual complaints, including, we detest this worthless or miserable food. And this is a reference to manna. So we have a direct attack on God and his gracious provision. Now, this is strange and especially unfortunate timing after their recent, clearly God-given victory in chapter 21, verses 1 through 3, against Arid. Even victory doesn't satisfy them. There's always something to complain about. Matthew Henry says, those that are disposed to quarrel will find fault where there is no fault to be found. And I think for us, though, this is something we see ourselves doing. We engage in grumbling against small things. We have big problems, and we go to God and get delivered. And then what do we do? We go right back to complaining against the small things, quickly forgetting God's provision in our life, his deliverance from those big things. Why can't we learn how to handle things better, particularly the smaller things? Verse 6, God sends venomous snakes to bite and kill the Israelites. This is referred to in 1 Corinthians 10.9. It's God's previous mercy to have prevented such attacks before. There's a reference to this in Deuteronomy 8.15. The Israelite response is, in verse 7, repentance of a type and then request for and delivery of Moses' prayer. Here, Moses is a type of Christ given his intercession for his persecutors. And of course, the irony in all this is rich. Matthew Henry says, How soon is their tone altered? Those who had just before quarreled with Moses as their worst enemy now make their court to him as their best friend and choose him for their advocate with God. Afflictions often change men's sentiments concerning God's people and teach them to value those prayers which, at a former period, they had scorned. The answer from God is in verses 8 and 9. Moses make a bronze snake, put it on a pole. Anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. So this is somewhere between bizarre, creative, and amazing. A creative punishment and cure. It's an interesting picture of an external bite and internal venom. So I like that a lot. Notice also it leaves the snakes behind. It doesn't remove them. It doesn't take care of their bites, but it does provide a cure antidote to the venom of the bite. It's also a strange arrangement because it runs counter to, although it doesn't exactly contradict the second commandment, think of Exodus 20 verse 4, and we're given good reason for a prohibition of this in the future because eventually this thing is destroyed in 2 Kings 18.4. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses has made, for up to that time the Israelites have been burning incense to it. In another way, it lines up perfectly well if you think about how the other sacrifices would work. Dead animals cause uncleanness, but if they're in the form of an offering, they cause cleanness. Same thing happens here. The snake, the poison, the bite, all of those are turned from something bad into something good. It's also interesting that God delivered the punishment and allowed Moses to be the direct instrument of the cure. And it's also pretty cool that it required an act of faith rather than just merely verbally assenting or receiving an automatic healing. 
As Wynnum puts it, contact between the saving symbol and the affected person was still required, but in the special circumstances here described, visual contact was all that was necessary. Of course, visual contact and faith. For the believer, it reminds us that faith in the proper thing is what's required. Where do we look and to whom we look is crucial. So, an interesting and amazing story, but of particular interest to the New Testament believer. Let's read John 3, 14 through 16. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So the context of the famous John 3.16 is exactly this story in Numbers 21. And the parallels to us are also amazing. The problem we face is we've been bitten by poisonous snakes or sin. Venomous can also be translated fiery. We think of the fiery darts of Satan from Ephesians 6.16, the red dragon of Revelation 12.3, or of course, the snake or serpent in Genesis 3. The problem is the same. The outcome is the same. Physical and spiritual death here. And the solution is the same as well. We look to the bronze snake or hear Christ who is lifted up on a pole or, of course, in Christ's case, a cross. John later uses the same imagery to talk about the cross and resurrection. John 12, 31 through 34, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up, we have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever, so how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? And of course, it's Jesus who is lifted up on the cross, who is lifted up in his resurrection, just like the snake in Numbers 21. There are other parallels as well. This is a plan devised by God, not by Moses. This is all a plan that God has put together, just as Jesus was as well. And the solution is in a similar form to that which was the problem. Romans 8, 3, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin in the flesh. Or 2 Corinthians five twenty one is even more direct. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or think about original sin, Adam and Eve as two thieves in the garden, but Christ would die between two thieves on those three crosses. The color red stands in for atonement and purification, the bronze or red snake. Bronze represents judgment, snake represents sin, the pole represents the tree. The remedy is the same. Faith and knowledge of the sin and wound are implicit. You can't accept it unless you know that you're a sinner. You cannot accept it unless you acknowledge your wound. As Wynnum puts it, it is clear how our Lord could use it as an apt picture of his own saving ministry. Men dying in sin are saved by the dead body of a man suspended on the cross. Just as physical contact was impossible between those bitten by snakes and the copper snake, so sinners are unable to touch the life-giving body of Christ. Yet in both situations, the sufferers must appropriate God's healing power themselves by looking at the copper snake or believing in the Son of Man. And what if people refuse? The answer and the outcome is the same. Refusal to accept this would result in death. Matthew Henry says, If they slighted this method of cure and had recourse to natural medicines entrusted to them, they justly perished. 
This was so easy to be healed simply by looking at the snake. And it's just like the grace of God. It is so easy. It is so non-exclusionary. Nothing need be done. Only accepting the grace of God by faith. Think of how many needlessly died in Numbers 21. Think of how many needlessly die today because they try to earn their salvation. They seek their own cures. They refuse to accept the grace of God. And why? Is it peer pressure? Is it that it requires submission and obedience to authority? Is it one's desire to rely on natural methods instead? One can't accept gifts. One can't accept that something is wrong and I can't fix it. Whatever it is, whether it's Numbers 21 or our modern day, people refuse to accept the wound. People refuse to accept the cure that is the bronze snake that is Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for the beauties of your scripture. I thank you for these little nuggets that are tucked into this remarkable book. I thank you how all of scripture uh, lines up so nicely. And most of all, we thank you for the ministry of Jesus who caused us to have a cure that we could embrace by faith to be saved from the venomous bite of sin and the snake. It's been good to be with you today. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.